This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Today is March the 15th, or the Ides of March, as it's written on the Roman calendar. It was this day in 44 BC that Julius Caesar was assassinated. It was a turning point in Roman history. Caesar remains a major figure of that time, but he was followed by other emperors of consequence. Although these rulers lived 2,000 years ago, our next guest says that they offer greater lessons on leadership and work today. Cornell University history professor Barry Strauss often speaks to business audiences about that area, and many are taking notice. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, reportedly one of those obsessed with that time period. Strauss has a new book about it titled Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine, and he joins us right now. Barry, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, So take us into the mindset of putting a collection together of these these 10 individuals, these 10 emperors, uh, and the various impacts that they had on the growth of the Roman Empire over what I guess amounts to about a 400-year span. Yeah. Yeah, great question. So let me, let me just state at the beginning, um, I call the book Ten Caesars. Caesar was a family name originally, like Julius Caesar, but it became the generic name for, for what we call an emperor. They didn't call themselves emperors. Right. They called themselves Caesars or Augustus, and they all wanted to claim a family relationship with the founders of the dynasty, with Julius Caesar and Augustus, even though in most cases, they were not related to them. Uh, sometimes they were adopted. Uh, sometimes they just grabbed power. But they like to think they were all part of the same family. So that's why we call them Caesars. And uh, I think what makes them so fascinating is they ran this empire of 50 to 70 million people stretched over 3,000 miles with very primitive technology, uh, hugely diverse in terms of ethnicities and cultures. And some... Uh, They kept it together, and they coped with change, and they're really a model of how how leaders can can deal with change and and save what they think is important about the past while adapting to the future. And just the amazing pragmatism and ruthless adaptability of these leaders is is, is what really drew me to them. So what is it that, that still resonates today with leaders? Well, for one thing, it's their founders, Augustus, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, as you mentioned, he's really uh, fascinated with Augustus because Augustus was the founder of something great, an empire that lasted for centuries, uh, for, and he had a vision. He had an enormous vision of what this empire could do, uh, and he was tremendously successful in bringing peace and prosperity to the empire. I think it also resonates, uh, uh, an, another thing that resonates about uh, these leaders is their ability to plan for the succession. didn't always succeed, but someone like Augustus from very early on, he was, he was in power for, for decades, but mm-hmm. very early on he was concerned, who's going to replace me? Who's going to ne- come next? And he paid a great deal of attention to the very difficult process of getting the right person who would replace him. Another thing about these leaders is that they're amazingly efficient. If you think how big the empire was, it's kind of amazing that they ran it with an army of only 300,000 men. Yeah. Um, 
so I think the lesson in efficiency there as well. Well, one of the things I found interesting is, I guess, as the Roman Empire continued to develop and 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 claim other territories, that uh, I guess in instances they actually offered citizenship to the people that they had just conquered. Yeah, that's really one of the reasons why the Romans were so successful from from their early years on. They don't just conquer people, but then they befriend them by offering them citizenship. Uh, It's a slow process. It takes centuries, but ultimately all the free people in the Roman Empire become Roman citizens. Uh, This is one of the most progressive moments in history, that they should extend their citizenship in such a way. Uh, really is a lesson for us today. I read that that the favorite of yours uh, in amongst this group was Marcus Aurelius. I think Marcus Aurelius, yeah, he's he's really the one emperor who is a truly good human being. Um, most of the emperors not so great, right. but Marcus Aurelius is a good person. He was a philosopher, and of course, he's left us his meditations. Uh, this. Uh, really amazing book. It's so rare in history that we can see inside the mind of a leader, uh, and that a leader speaks to us in such an elevated manner, and that he still offers us business lessons and, and leadership lessons and life lessons for today. We're joined by Barry Strauss, who's a history professor at Cornell University and also author of the book Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You start the book uh, talking about Augustus, who you you mention is an icon and right. he knew how to win at everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the very name Augustus, that's not his name. It's, yeah. it's kind of a stage name. Uh, he's born Gaius Octavius, then he's adopted by Julius Caesar. So he changes his name to Julius Caesar. We sometimes call him Octavian because of his birth name. But he takes his name Augustus, which means something like reverend or respected one. Uh, so he is an icon. He's just the guy behind who has this name uh, to, to, to kind of hide the fact that he's really the king, because Romans are not really very appreciative of having kings. They want to believe that they're still living in a republic. Um, he's also just immensely talented. He is a, a great speaker and a very wily politician from mm-hmm. an early age. I mean, he emerges on the scene at 18. He's not the world's greatest general, but he is good at people, and he gets himself a superb general to fight his battles for him, and on top of that, to be loyal to him. It's someone he can trust. It's a man named Marcus Agrippa. So it's, it's his intelligence and Augustus's skill at people relations that gets him the second-in-command that he needs is so important for any leader to have a trustworthy, efficient, competent second-in-command. But when you're, when you're running this entire empire uh, and you're looking at all the different aspects of it, how do you qualify him as, as a leader? I mean, obviously he is a, a, an emperor, a leader in that scope, but I would imagine that there are qualities that he has to have that have to be similar to being like a CEO of a company. Oh, definitely. As you say, he's got to run this empire, and the empire is huge. So he's got to have the right people to help him, um, and he's got to have people he trusts. He's also got to have an intelligence network, um, and he's uh, got to be have a work ethic that's just um, 
punishing uh, the guys on the road for years and years and years. It's not as if he's sitting in the palace in Rome, but he's constantly traveling, mm-hmm. uh, constantly showing himself, uh, and constantly marketing himself. I mean, his, his image and that of his family are ubiquitous in the Roman world. Uh, you see them everywhere on coins, in statues. Um, you know, and he's, he's, again and again, the guy's making decisions. Uh, it's exactly like, like running any large enterprise. So any image that we might have of the emperors just being decadent and having people peel them grapes is not going to apply to Augustus. I, I would think that, w- though, when you look at, at this time period as a whole, part of the, the story is also how, while the Roman Empire obviously has its roots in in Rome and, and Italy, of how expansive it was and, and the territories that it went out to acquire, to, to grab in that period of time. Yeah, so, you know, ultimately the empire is extending from Britain to what is today northern Iraq, um, and including Egypt and North Africa, the western part of Germany, um, and all of the Mediterranean, of course. Uh, and the Romans are very good, as we said, at, ex- at making deals with people, extending their citizenship, but also, you know, offering the highest uh, levels, uh, levers of power to people from the empire. So the the emperors eventually don't come from Rome, and they don't come from Italy. They come from Spain. They come from North Africa. Mm-hmm. They come from Syria. They come from the Balkans. Um, and it's the fact that the Romans were willing to open their elite to newcomers from so many different places. I think that's a key reason for their success. What about the role of women in this in this period of time? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. It's easy to overlook them because the Romans were a macho and sometimes misogynistic. Yeah. But in fact, uh, the women played a huge role in Roman society at every level, beginning from uh, trade and uh, uh, and. Uh, commerce, uh, excuse me, trade and, uh, and uh, uh, craftsmanship, but also in the imperial family. So Augustus is married to a Roman noblewoman named Livia, and they're married for 54 years, mm-hmm. and she has an enormous amount of influence. She's not just his wife, she's one of his chief advisors. She travels with him around the empire, so she's not staying at home. She builds buildings, she organizes religious festivals, she particularly reaches out to women, uh, and she's not unusual. Many of the emperors have influential wives, mistresses, mothers. Hadrian is the first emperor in history, maybe the first man in history to deify his mother-in-law. He makes her into a goddess. Um, and... Um, Constantine's mother, uh, Helena, later Saint Helena, uh, is uh, one of the key figures in the Christianization of the Roman Empire. Yeah. He gives her the task of turning Palestine into the Holy Land. Um, so uh, women are playing a very, very important role. I, I was going to talk about that a little later, but as you kind of opened the door to it, that, that part with Constantine in the book where, yeah. and the the spirituality that obviously developed out of that, that was that was a, a, obviously a very important turning point in terms of, of the Roman Empire. Yeah. So the Romans, the emperors always thought religion was very important. Augustus um, is deified after his death, and many of the emperors are deified. Uh, But, uh, of course, as you say, one of the great moments in history is when Constantine becomes a Christian. He's the first Christian emperor. Uh, There had 
Christians were spread, Christianity was spreading in the empire, perhaps 10% of the population, but also had been persecuted. Constantine ends all that, turns things around, uh, and uh, within a century, the Roman Empire is officially a Christian empire, and mm -hmm. um, that is the, um, the basis for the Christianization of, of Europe and, and much of the world today. One of the chapters uh, is about Hadrian, and uh, it's titled Hadrian the Greek, but it also it gives us opportunity to talk about the dynamic between the Romans and the Greeks in, in part of this time as well. Yeah, you know, what we call the Roman Empire could also be called the Greco-Roman Empire. Right. Um, the uh, Greek people were um, everywhere in the empire. The Roman elite was... Um, learned Greek the way, you know, maybe the British and American elite used to learn French. Uh, and the city of Rome had a huge Greek population, probably the largest Greek-speaking city in the world in, in the time of Imperial Rome. And if you think about the cultural legacy of Rome, what are the two most influential books from the Roman Empire? Well, first of all, the New Testament, written in Greek. And then Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, also written in Greek. Neither of them written in Latin, but they're right. both products of the Roman Empire. So, yeah, Greeks are immensely important. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We're talking about the book Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors, from Augustus to Constantine. Barry Strauss is the author of the book, a history professor at Cornell University. You also also uh, talk about Nero in here, and, and yeah. I and, and I read an account that that he is not necessarily your favorite in amongst this group. No, you know um, Nero uh, Nero was not a good person. What can we say? Uh, he is responsible for the murder of his own mother, yeah. um, and also for the for the death of his first wife, whom he divorces for uh, uh, another woman. Um, he presides over the great fire of Rome, and there's some evidence, some reason to think that he might have even have caused the fire because he wanted to build a new city, which he wanted to name after himself. He wanted to change the name of Rome to Neropolis, Nero City. Yeah. Uh, he's also, of course, a persecutor of Christians, and he's responsible for the oppressive government of Judea, of Judea that leads to the Jewish revolt against Rome. Um, he's a bad actor. Yeah. Well, it, it, switching back to Constantine for a second, one of the things that I, I read is that also during the time of Constantine, uh, this was also the time where Istanbul started to grow as well, correct? Absolutely, yes. So Constantine, uh, there, there was a Greek city there called Byzantium, and Constantine renames it Constantinopolis, Constantine yeah. City. Uh, and it's meant to be an eastern capital of the Roman Empire, quickly develops into a second capital of the empire, and ultimately outstrips Rome as uh, the greatest city in the Mediterranean world, and indeed the greatest city in Europe. So it's, it's a huge shift eastward for the empire, and uh, the history of the world moves on its axis as a result of Constantine's decision. There are, uh, for those people that don't follow this closely, there are several uh, names in here which uh, might they might be seeing for the first time in terms of, uh, of these emperors, of these leaders of the Roman Empire. And I wanted to touch on one, if you could for a second, sure. is Septimius Severus, uh, yes. the African. Yes. 
So he comes from North Africa. He comes from what is today Libya, and he is uh, partly descended from Italians, uh, Italian colonists. It's possible that he's also partly descended from um, from North Africans, from Berbers. So it's also conceivable that people might think of him as the first black emperor, although we honestly don't know about his uh, about his race. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm. What's interesting about Septimius Severus is that he um, he makes the empire much more militarized than it had been before. He comes to power in a civil war, and he um, he creates a new um, legion base right outside of Rome on the Appian Way. Uh, and he also his motto that he tells his sons and successors is pay the soldiers and forget about everybody else. <laughs> so talking about a CEO who's ruthless about identifying the one part of his workforce that matters, uh, he is it. It's also interesting that he marries a woman from Syria, mm-hmm. and uh, so he creates this uh, this new dynasty from Syria and North Africa uh, that certainly is changing the ethnic and cultural composition of, of the ruling family in a big way. Well, the military obviously plays a big role uh, in this entire time frame. Uh, yeah. And what's interesting is, as the Roman Empire obviously used its military as, a, as a, an important tool over the period of time, as you get later and later in this period, other areas, other countries, other empires were developing their military, which kind of ended up to, to, the, to the dwindling of the Roman Empire. Yeah, you know, one of the things about successful military powers is they generate imitators and competitors. I guess that's true in business as well. Right. Uh, the Germans, um, who fought the Romans on and off for centuries, also learned organization and discipline from the Romans. Uh, which uh, allowed them, first of all, to defeat Augustus's attempt to conquer all of Germany. They destroy three Roman legions, uh, and ultimately, centuries later, allows the Germans to conquer the Roman Empire. Meanwhile, in the east, the Romans had been fighting for centuries with an Iranian empire called the Parthians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Parthians uh, collapse in part because of the pressure from Rome, but that's the good news for Rome. The bad news for Rome is they were placed by a new dynasty that's even stronger and more of a challenge to Rome, the Sasanian Persian Empire. And so uh, the Roman Empire is, for centuries, is fighting two front wars in the West against Germans and in the East against Iranians. You you also mentioned, that I guess, that towards the end uh, of the of the Roman Empire, there would be situations where you would have multiple people ruling, correct? Yes. So the Romans came to the conclusion that the problems of the empire were too big for any one person. So beginning with Diocletian and with most of his successors, the empire is divided between two emperors, one in the east and one in the west. There's right. too much pressure on the frontiers for any one person any one place to deal with it. We're talking with uh, Barry Strauss, who is the author of the book Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The military element obviously being part of it, but what were some of the other factors that, that started to, to, to push the Roman Empire towards, uh, towards its end? Well, misgovernment was a big factor. So in the West, uh, the empire has a series of bad emperors, uh, and 
dynastic disputes, internal conflict when the Romans could ill afford it, when they most needed to be unified against uh, outside pressure, against invasions. They gave themselves the luxury of fighting each other. That's one problem they had. Another problem that they had was that there was pressure on the frontier. The, uh, in um, Coming from the east, there were new peoples who were pushing the Germans uh, out of Germany and into the Roman Empire. Uh, and so that was another problem. The Romans had to deal with this issue of massive immigration uh, and the challenge that that presented, and they didn't handle it very well. But I, I guess, I guess, even with the with the the power that the Roman Empire had, that at at, at some point, in some level, uh, what they were looking to try and do is try and find a level of peace for an, an entire large section of the world. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean. Um, Beginning with Augustus, the Romans were uh, priding themselves on their ability to provide peace, order, good government, and a degree of prosperity. And they had to do all that while also dealing in, in many periods with, with huge challenges on the border, uh, huge military challenges. So it was, it was a very tough job. They also, in uh, in some of the writings in here, they also would at times, I guess, wage what I guess would be referred to as PR wars, public relations wars, correct? Most definitely. The emperors were great marketers. So uh, one uh, one fabulous example of this is the Colosseum. You know, we yeah. think of the Colosseum, the Colosseum in Rome as a sports arena, but yeah. it wasn't just about sports. Uh, it was about selling the empire, uh, entertaining the city, people of the city of Rome and keeping them happy with, and, uh, with these games, uh, but also giving people a sense of the greatness and power and glory of the empire that could, could build anything like this, and that brought they brought victims and animals, human and animal victims from all over the Roman world. So um, it's it's a way of marketing Rome. I, I do find it interesting that you you have this time period, you know, four hundred years, and yeah. you have this continuous succession of leaders over over the course of time. It, it's an amazing thing. It's one thing to have all of these leaders, you know, following one after the other, but right. to still be able to have the strength of the empire that it had over that en- entity of time. Yeah. No, they were, um, you know, the Romans had already developed habits by the beginning of the empire. They'd already been in the business of expanding for centuries. They developed these habits of pragmatism, um, and ruthlessness, and I think that's one of the reasons why they are able to hold the empire together. Uh, they also, of course, have the structure of Roman law and the Roman engineering skills, the roads, the transport system, the buildings, and and the ability to, as we said before, to bring in outsiders, to make them citizens, to give them a stake in maintaining the Roman Empire. It's, but, all, it's all part of a package. And how much, though, was, was the strength of the Roman Empire in going into all of these different territories also a way to be able to to increase development of a variety of different things that obviously the Roman Empire is linked to, but in these other parts of the world? Well, yes. I mean, the Romans are... Uh, I mean, you see, first of all, you see Roman civilization spreading Roman customs and mores, you know, people... Uh, taking part in gladiatorial games. If you go to London now, uh, you can see the remains of the the amphitheater of London. And uh, we see artifacts and gladiators, but you see the same things in Turkey. You don't have amphitheaters, but they have gladiators. So uh, Roman ways of doing things are spreading. And there are cities that develop, particularly in 
Western Europe that start out as uh, they started as Roman military camps and turned into great cities like Cologne in Germany, for instance, uh, starts out that way. So in Western Europe, there is a lot of development that goes on as a result of the Roman Empire and the interaction of the Romans uh, with the people who lived there beforehand. I have about 30 seconds left, but it sounds like from the interest that is there in today's society for uh, what a lot of these uh, emperors did, that, that this is something that will probably continue because of the lasting effect that they're having already. Yes, I think that interest uh, in the Roman emperors will continue, and we can we can constantly learn from them. Of course, some of the things that we learn from them are negative. Don't sure. do this, like yeah. Nero. Yeah. But there are positive lessons that we can learn from them about how you rule, how you deal with change, how you deal with complex and diverse societies, and, and indeed how you get to be great. Uh, and that's right. one of these things. You know, there are lessons of greatness. Barry, great to have you with us today. Good luck with the book. All Thank the best. You. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank Thanks you. So much. Barry Strauss of Cornell University, the author of the book, Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Pleasure to have him on the show. The book is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 